0: Okay. Good morning, if I could, could you guys stick the slide up for the last song, the last chorus? Love that song and love how doctrine is taught in music, right? Doctrine is taught in music. And here we have in this refrain teaching on the blessings of salvation, right? The blessings of salvation. We believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And salvation has its three aspects. And they get confused sometimes. And and people wrestle with different things. But what we have here is justification, sanctification, and glorification. And so justification is when we place our faith in Christ as the The payment for the penalty for our sins. We are saved from the penalty of our sins when we are justified by God through faith in Jesus Christ. But then sanctification is being set apart for God's purpose. Right. And sanctification is that process whereby God begins to mold us into the image of Christ. Our salvation is settled because the penalty has been paid. Our sanctification is an ongoing process. We are being saved from the power of sin in our lives. OK, so saved from the penalty of sin once for all, for all time. Sanctification, we are being. It's a process. We are being saved from the power of sin and being molded into the image of Jesus Christ, his son. And we we continue on that journey until glorification, till either the Lord returns and takes us to be with him or we die and we go into the presence of the Lord, we, we call that glorification. When we become, we are given those new bodies that are glorified. These old bodies are decaying, rotting, if you will. They can't make it for eternity. We'll be glorified. So justified, oh, blessed thought. Sanctified is salvation wrought. Thy blood hath pardoned, bought for me, and glorified I too shall be. We will be saved from the presence of sin one day. And so I love that song and I love how we see the aspects of that. OK, you can take a slide down now if you want to. Doctrine. We preach the doctrines of Christ. We sing the doctrines of Christ. This morning we're going to be in Psalm 73. As you can see from your handout if you want to turn in your Bibles there. One of my favorite Passages in the Bible because it's it's something in my sanctification process that God is working on me, and then sometimes I need to be worked on again because I can I can really identify with Asaph and what he says here. He is envious of the wicked, and uh, there's a song called "Farther Along." It's an old song. But it says this tempted and tried, we're oft made to wonder why it should be thus all the day long while there are others living about us, never molested, though in the wrong. When death has come and taken our loved ones, it leaves our home so lonely and dreary. Then do we wonder why others prosper living so wicked year after year. And that expresses well the thoughts of the psalmist as he comes into this psalm where he's going to open up his heart to the Lord. And we're going to see the theme of the heart go throughout this psalm. But there are many people who are ruthless business owners who live lives of luxury, and they do not seem to have a care in the world. There are celebrities that revel in their sinfulness, yet there's no repercussions for their actions. And yet you have trusted Christ as your Savior. You have been justified, and yet you struggle to get by. In fact, sometimes you suffer injustice. Though you've done no wrong, you are oppressed. Others persecuting you for living a godly life instead of your service to the Lord being a blessing seems closer to a curse. And it's when we when we know things about God, the truths about God, and yet our experience seems to say something else. We have this conflict, right? We we know that God judges sin. He says he says he does and he says he will. But yet. We don't see that right now. And we can become envious of others. One of the downfalls of social media is that we see when everybody else takes a vacation. Right? I'm like, boy, must be nice. What's happening in my heart when I say that? Envy. Envy. I become envious of others. And the thing of it is, is others don't share the arguments that they had with their spouse right before they took that picture. Right? Not that Kim and I do that. I mean, you know, no, I'm just teasing. But we we struggle with envying others. We want the good things in life, and we want life to be easy. And we struggle sometimes as Christians. And life is hard sometimes as a Christian. I mean, there's just difficulties. There's persecution. There's... Health issues, there's all kinds of things that get in the way of enjoying this life. And God desires that we enjoy him. And so we come upon the psalmist here and in verses one through three, we see that his knowledge of God and his experience clash. And we have in verse one, a psalm of Asaph. Asaph was. Uh, set aside by David to, to write hymns and lead music in the tabernacle. And he says this, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked the pure here are not perfect people but they're loyal people loyal to the lord in their speech and action so they they have pure motives if you will they're not hypocrites they have pure hearts they're following the lord but asaph has a struggle of belief because of experience Knowledge of God and His experience clash, and He finds that His heart has become envious. And then He describes the wicked to us. Here's the earthly reality. I mean, we 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 want we want to we want to go out and tell people, "Hey, you need to get saved and you need to follow the Lord because man, life will be good." Well, life will eventually be real good in the new creation, right? But this life, mm, nah, not necessarily. So he describes what he's envying about the wicked here. Verse four through verse 12. For they have no pains until death. No, no pains. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. It, It identifies them. How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, and they increase in riches. Here's the earthly reality. The wicked prosper. And just to summarize, they're they're healthy until they're dead. Their lives are relatively carefree. And that results in pride and violence. They wear pride like a necklace. And violence covers them. If they want something, they go get it. They don't care who they step on to get it or who they hurt or who it affects. One commentator said they live at the expense of others. In verse 7, it talks about their hearts overflow with folly. They, they do whatever their hearts desire. And their hearts desire wrong things. And in verses 8 and 9, they know how to manipulate people with their words and gain power. And verse 10, that results in everyone wanting favor with them. It says, therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. People turn a blind eye to the wickedness of the powerful because they want to be in favor with the powerful. Maybe they'll throw a few coins my way or some business my way. And they just... Utterly disregard God's ways in verse 11. They don't deny that there's a God, but they question his knowledge. Right? We, we, might want, we might rephrase it this way. Eh, God has his way, but my way gets me what I want. And you can just feel the exasperation in verse 12 when the psalmist states, Behold, these are the wicked. Always these. They increase in riches. So there's a great faith struggle going on. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But is God good to me? Here we have in our time what we would say is the Christian who's turned from his sin. He's trusted Christ as Savior. He's left his wicked ways in order to follow Christ. And things have not turned out like he thought they would. He's been shunned, maybe called some names, work's been more difficult. And look at verse 13 as he describes how he feels. All in vain, I've kept my, my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. In other words, it's, van- it's been vanity for me to follow the Lord. What, what, what good has it been for me? For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I, if I had said, I will speak thus, like, like the wicked people, if I would speak like them, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. In verses 13 and 14, the psalmist struggles with what he knows about God and what he's experiencing here on earth. And inwardly with a clean heart and outwardly with innocent hands, the psalmist has served the Lord, yet his reward that he is experiencing is turmoil all day and rebuke in the morning. I mean, what a way to start your day, right? To be rebuked first thing in the morning. And he is envious of the wicked who prosper. His his struggle is so great that he begins to believe that he's followed the Lord in vain. And his internal faith struggle is great, but he's keeping it to himself in verse 15. He's like, I can't talk like that, like those wicked people. If I did, it would cause other believers to stumble. To put voice to his thoughts would have been a betrayal of his fellow believers. And listen, some of you may have may struggle with this from time to time. Sometimes we sit in our pews and we're singing songs and we think, you know what, that that's maybe true for some of the people in this room, but it sure doesn't feel like it is to me. And of course these psalms that are written are meant to be sung, were meant to be sung in the tabernacle. It's a temple. And so we wrestle with these things. But we don't voice them. Such struggle you have. Maybe you're wrestling with things and it's it's been tough and somebody comes up to you and says, boy, hey, brother, isn't God good? And you smile and you say all the time, but internally you're not so sure. The psalmist's struggle reaches an overwhelming point until he enters the sanctuary of God. Then his perspective changes. No longer would he see a situation from solely an earthly perspective. And the church is God's sanctuary now. Uh, I put on your hand out there, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. And I've labeled it the ESV Texas edition because I've made the pronouns uh, improper plural Texan so that it's easier to see since English doesn't differentiate. But Paul writes there in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 17, he says, Do you do you not know that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and y'all are that temple. And then Ephesians two twenty two, same thing in Christ. Y'all are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Coming to church and being among God's people helps us to keep things in perspective. Because we go out and we live amongst the kingdom of Satan, where he rules and reigns, all throughout the week. But we come in here, this is God's territory. This is God's kingdom. We're representing God's rule here. And we're reminded to not just focus on the horizontal but to remember the vertical. And so, when he enters the temple, he discerns their end. Upon entering the sanctuary, the psalmist is reminded of a heavenly reality. God will judge the wicked. Look at verses 18-20. through 20. He says, truly, you set them, that's the wicked, truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors like a dream. When one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourselves, you despise them as phantoms. And what's that saying? Phantoms. It, it, it means something shadowy. Something without form or substance. And so in this context here, when he's talking about dreams, dreams have a form of reality. You ever had one of those dreams that just seems so real and then you woke up and you're just like, did that just happen? Right. They have a form of reality, but they're not real. And so when you have a wonderful dream and you wake up, you're disappointed it wasn't real But when you have a nightmare and you wake up, you despise the dream. And when God brings judgment, he is going to despise the wicked like a bad dream. You see, eternal judgment awaits the wicked. They may believe there's a God, but they don't believe that he knows what is best. And so they don't follow him. And folks, we we tend to think of the wicked as people out there. And they, have no dis- they just disregard God. But, beloved, unfortunately, I think this describes some people who are in church. Maybe even in church today. You believe there's a God. You just don't think He knows what's best. And so you choose what's best. You choose what delights your heart. And you don't think God knows what He's talking about. Be careful. You may be following an idol of God that looks more like you than He does like God. Arrogance will make a person reject Jesus Christ as their savior, and it will result in their eternal punishment. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verses six through ten. It's there on your handout. Thessalonians were going through a lot of persecution in the early church. They were being persecuted by the people they lived among. And we're kind of jumping into the middle of a sentence, but... In Verse six, but it it says God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When's that going to happen? When's he going to afflict the wicked and when is he going to grant us relief? Well, it's when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, pause there for just a minute because we have two categories of people that are going to be judged here. The first is those who do not know God. There are people in this world who have not heard the name of Jesus besides as a curse word or used in vain. And if you go through your life or if they go through their life and they never hear the gospel, they will be punished because they're sinners. And that's why it's so important that we get the gospel out, that we go to them. It's God's plan to save His people is for his people to go into the world. It's the Great Commission. It's why we as a church support missionaries who go to places that we can't go. So that they can give the gospel to people who have never heard. So he's going to inflict vengeance on those who do not know God. Those that have been brought up in false religious systems. Never heard about the true God. And there's a second category. Those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And that second group is the people who hear the gospel, but they don't repent of their sin and follow Christ as their king. They reject him. They hear it, but they reject him. Vengeance is going to come on them. Verse nine, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. And from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. So for the people who hear the gospel and believe the gospel, we get to marvel in the greatness of God when He returns for his people. Now it may trouble you. You say, "Well, people who have never heard is that fair pastor. Well, we don't want fair, right? We want mercy because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I like to put it this way. Some people deserve hell more than others, but nobody deserves heaven. Some people deserve hell more than others, but nobody deserves heaven. And there may be a wicked person who's lived a very wicked life. And and I think, man, man. They don't deserve to be saved, but they repent of their sins and they trust Christ as their Savior. When we get to heaven, he may be in the room next to mine and we'll walk out and I'll go, oh, I didn't expect to see you here. You, you, you don't deserve to be here. And he'll look at me and go, you don't either. Some people deserve hell more than others, but nobody deserves heaven, beloved. We all need a Savior. The wicked live in an unreal Reality. They're here today and gone tomorrow. And the psalmist has been reminded of this fact. For the wicked, this world is as good as it gets. But for the believer, this world is as bad as it gets. Realizing heavenly realities cures envy of the wicked. Realizing heavenly realities cures envy of the wicked. And then I've... Labeled there, verses 21 through 26, reactions to a reality check. Reactions to a reality check. Now he's went into the presence of of the Lord's sanctuary. He's realized this and he says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. His sin is revealed here. His envy of the wicked and his self-pity are recognized as sin. The psalmist was acting like an unintelligent beast. There was no wisdom in his envy and his self-pity. And he was acting like an animal. You know what animals act upon? Their desires. My son has a dog named Pugsley. He's a pug. There's one thing above everything else that Pugsley loves, and it's food. It's food. He'll sit at the table. He'll beg. He'll beg. He'll bark. He'll yip. He wants food. Beloved, when we are envious of wicked people and the things that they have, we're acting like animals. We are saying that our desires are what are controlling us. He says, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Verse 23, his relationship is realized. He says, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. God will never leave you nor forsake you. He will guide us in his ways and he will bring us to himself in glory. The imagery here is that God has our hand. You say, Pastor, once I'm saved, once I'm justified, what In that sanctification process, what if what if I fall away? Listen, you're not holding on to God's hand. If my salvation was up to me, I wouldn't be saved. But for those of you that have had children and you've you've walked with your children and maybe you were walking in the mall or or somewhere. But then you say you were walking around the mall and you kind of held, held a pretty decent grip on their hand. But when you went out in the parking lot, you might have gripped them a little bit stronger, Right. Because they weren't going to get away from you. You were protecting them. You were leading them. You were guiding them. You were protecting them. And you were going to make sure they get to their car and get in their car seat. Well, beloved, God's got us by the hand. And He's going to guide us through this old wicked life. And one of these days, He's going to lift us up into glory. What a God. His relationship is realized, and then his desires are realigned. Look at verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Now, what was he desiring at the beginning of the psalm? He desired what the wicked had. But when he realizes eternity, he says, man, whom do I have in heaven besides you? Well, nobody. What about down here on earth? On earth, I don't desire anything besides you. His desires are being realigned. And beloved, that's what we need as we grow in our sanctification. We need our desires realigned to where we desire God. James 1 verses 13 through 15 says this, and and I put it this way, sin is a result of misplaced desires. Sin is a result of misplaced desires. James 1, verse 13 through 15 says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown... Brings forth death. The problem with sin is within. Satan may throw a lure in the water when we're lured and enticed. That's that's the the trap, right? He he put some bait in a trap. And it's our desires that lead us astray. And James is telling us the problem's not God, the problem's our desires. I've shared with you before, my father-in-law had a garden up and it was next to the woods and and he had a, a raccoon that was getting into the garden. And so we took this metal trap up there. And so nothing could look more out of place in a lush garden with beautiful woods around it than metal. Right. And I'm like, why in the world would an animal go in that that looks so foreign and weird? And he put peanut butter in it. You see, the the raccoon was so focused on the bait, he didn't see the trap. And Satan knows that. And he gets us focused on the bait. And we don't see the trap. It's our desires that are the problem. Our desires need realigned. We need to take joy in the Lord. Whom do we have in heaven besides Him? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Hey, how about you this morning? Can you say that? Is there anything on this earth that you desire more than God? He notices his inheritance here. He recognizes his inheritance in verse 26. He says, my flesh and my heart may fail. There's our heart again. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That portion, that's his, his allotment, his inheritance Forever. Though we will die, God is our strength and portion for eternity. We get God forever. Realizing heavenly realities cures envy of the wicked. And then he has this great conclusion to the psalm in verses 27 and 28. And it's talking, it's, it's using the language of near and far. And so that's really talking about relationship, right? Relationship for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. So if you want to be far from God, be unfaithful to God. The Christian life, we're told to follow the spirit, right? And the spirit leads us to follow Christ, so if we're not following Christ, we are being unfaithful and we are away from Him and we're revealing that we're really not His child. But then verse 28, But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Those who reject God now will one day be cast away from God forever. It is good to be near God now because in the resurrection, he will draw us near for eternity. God will judge the wicked, beloved. Therefore, we need not be envious of them or live in self-pity because of the situation that God has placed us in. He loves us. He's got us by the hand in whatever circumstances we may be in. And he has the power to deliver us from our circumstances. So if he doesn't deliver us from our circumstances, then what can we know? That our circumstances are working for some good purpose that he has. And you say, Pastor, it's hard. This world is as bad as it gets for believers. Don't lose sight of that. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. This world is as bad as it gets for the believer. Repent of your sinful attitude and make God your soul desire. Realizing heavenly realities cures envy of the wicked. And God is good to those who follow him. Truly, God is good to Israel, the psalmist began, to those who are pure of heart. It is God that holds you and guides you and one one day will bring you to himself. Set your hope on that day. Serve God with your life now and tell others about him. Now, the lyrics that I shared with you, we finished with, Then do we wonder why others prosper living so wicked year after year. It then goes on to say, Farther along, we'll know all about it. Farther along, we'll understand why. Cheer up, my brother. Live in the sunshine. We'll understand it all by and by. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus hang in there, make God the delight of your heart. Tell others about him and serve him with your life. And let's not be envious of the wicked. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your goodness, for truly you are good to your people. Father, sometimes our hearts begin to desire other things besides you. And our desire for other things grows while our desire for you dims. And Father, I pray if that's the case here this morning with any in our midst, I pray that you will become large again, become the desire to see fulfilled and enjoyed in this life and in the life to come. That nothing on earth will be desired more than you. And Then, Father, if there are those here today who do not know Christ as their Savior, I pray that they will turn from their sin and place their faith in Christ and Christ alone for their salvation. May you show them how great their sin is, but how great the Savior is who died for them. And Lord, I pray, strengthen us. May we encourage one another on this walk until that day when we are with you and we see all that you are up to in this old world. And we ask it in Jesus name. Amen.